0: So, if you'd uh, just join me, we're just going to pray for Graham before he preaches. Um, So, Father God, uh, we just thank you for Graham. Thank you for um, the study that he's put into this word that he's going to bring today. Father God, we uh, we pray that you'd open our hearts, you'd open our minds, and prepare us to receive the word. We pray that uh, you would uh, give Graham the strength and courage to speak your word with uh, the authority of heaven. Amen. So, who were the Sadducees? Who were the Sadducees? I think often when we think of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we immediately think pantomime villains, don't we? Boo, hiss. And we think of the Sadducees maybe in the same way we think of the Pharisees. But in fact, they were quite different in a number of ways. What we know about the Sadducees... Actually, mostly comes from the Bible. What historians know about the Sadducees comes from the Gospels in the main. However, there were two historians that also wrote about these guys that we call the Sadducees. One of them was a Jewish historian called Josephus. And he tells us a couple of important things about these characters. Of course, we've already read about the Sanhedrin, haven't we? Coming and questioning Jesus. And Jesus tells them a parable, doesn't he, about the wicked tenant farmers, which they did they like that? Were they super keen on the uh, image portrayed about them there? They were very angry, weren't they? So they went away, they exited the scene, and they sent along who? The Pharisees and the Herodians, if you remember. They came next and they began to question Jesus. And now we've got the Sadducees coming along. Now the Sadducees, what we know about them is that they were well-educated, they were wealthy, they were aristocratic, and they got on quite well with the Romans. They got on quite well with the Romans. In contrast to the Pharisees who wanted the Romans out, they thought this was an abomination. Whereas the Sadducees were quite comfortable with the Romans so long as they could line their pockets and get nice houses, get all that they could from the Roman overlords. They were well-educated, aristocratic, well-spoken, and they formed part of the Sanhedrin. Do you remember who they were? They were sort of the ruling elites, the high priests, the chief priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were all part of this group called the Sanhedrin. However... If you imagine a line, a big long line, on the left hand side of this line, you had the Sadducees, and on the other end of this line at the right, you had the Pharisees. Okay? Out on the left, the Sadducees, they were basically theologically liberal. They were the kind of progressive Christians of their day. Okay? And then out on the right, you've got the Pharisees, who were kind of the. Fundamentalists, the rabid fundamentalists of the day. If you've ever watched a, a, a Baptist, a, a fundamentalist Baptist minister called Stephen Anderson in the United States, I'd recommend it just for comedy value, not for theology. But that's who we're talking about over there. That, that's somebody who basically is a legalist. Anybody heard that term before? Legalist. What's a what's a legalist? I think people get confused these days, and they just call anybody who takes Scripture seriously a legalist, don't they? It's like if you actually believe what the Bible says, well, you're, he's a rabid fundamentalist. He's a legalist. And you're like, no, 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 that's not what the word means. Legalism is actually when people add to scripture, it's when they take their own traditions. Let's say, for example, dress code on Sundays, right? Now, if I was to say to you, as I did earlier, you know, next week, come in shorts and t shirts, it's going to be warm. But if you don't, we'll rebuke you openly in the meeting. Now, that's. Legalism, okay? You see that I am bringing in a new law that's not from Scripture, but I have inserted it and I'm now making sure that everyone abides by it. And if you don't, there'll be punishment. That's legalism. And that's where the Pharisees were at. Do you remember Jesus talked about their traditions of men? Okay? There was a book of traditions that the Pharisees added on to the word of Scripture. That's what legalism is. That's how you spot legalism. It's when somebody wants to add their own rules, their own traditions onto scripture, and you've got to abide by it all. It's super toxic and super abusive. How many of you have ever experienced a legalistic culture before? It's not nice, it's very limiting. Um, also, fundamentalism and Christian fundamentalism is where you cannot do what we call Theological triage. Anybody heard of that term before? This is a good this is we're getting deep already today. Theological triage. Go and listen to my hammer and tulip podcast. We had a whole session on theological triage. And there's a great book by a man called Gavin Ortland on what that means. Now, have you ever heard of triage in terms of a hospital before? Yeah? So if you rock up to A and E, something called triage happens. And what they're doing there is they're wanting to ascertain who has the most serious and urgent problem in that A&E, A&E department? They're wanting to know who do we need to treat urgently right now or else, and who can probably wait a couple or three hours. So that's what triage is. And that's what we have to do sometimes with theology. We've got to do that with theology, or else we'd end up falling out over things that maybe aren't necessary that we fall out over. Okay? Like, for example, how many angels are there in the Bible? Okay? How many angel appearances are there in the Bible? Now, that's something that you know, we're going to disagree on. Okay? Is it as important as the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, it's not. It's manifestly not as important. But a fundamentalist will treat every doctrine as equally important and will fall out over the number of angels in heaven as much as they'll fall out over the Trinity. Okay? So we've got to be able to do theological triage, okay? So what that means is we're going to say that there are tier one issues, like the Trinity, like the, let's, let's say, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. These are top tier issues that really do divide between somebody who's a Christian and somebody who's not. They're really important. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then actually that's, that means you're not a Christian, Right? If you don't believe in the Trinitarian God, then that puts you outside of Christian orthodoxy. The second tier, you'll have other things in there. Third tier, you'll have other discussions. I don't want to say what they are because everybody feels that they're different issues. And down on the fourth, I would say are things like, it's not that they're not important, but they're issues we shouldn't be you know, saying, you're not a Christian over, right? So eschatology, what happens in the last days and things like that. Now, a fundamentalist will tell you that you're not saved based on how you see the end times, right? They'll say, unless you believe in the rapture or my version of eschatology, you're not even saved, right? That's fundamentalism. Is this making sense? Um, And so we've got to be able to do something called theological triage. Now, over on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the theological liberals, and that's who the Sadducees were, okay? They were the liberals... Of their day so they weren't fundamentalist at all Uh, they were borderline faithless to be honest they they were infidels in terms of what they actually believed and that's how progressivism goes okay what they believed was what we know from history and from the bible was that the sadducees did not believe in the resurrection they did not believe that anybody was going to be raised from the dead secondly they only believed that God had given five books. They only believed in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses at the start of your Bible. The Sadducees said, excuse me, could I get the water at the back room? Um, They said that those were the only inspired books of Scripture. Now, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in any supernatural stuff at all. So they had quite an atheistic Worldview really. It wasn't fully atheism because they did believe that God had spoken through Moses, but they didn't believe in any of this supernatural nonsense. Of course, that doesn't happen. It's ludicrous. They didn't believe in that. And they didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. They didn't believe that there was a God who was governing the affairs of the world. Uh, They believed that everything had been left up to us, that we were the captains of our own fate. They believed in free will the absolute free will of man, uh, to do whatever he pleases, um, but no sovereignty at all. So that's roughly what the Sadducees believe. So if if you remember, out on the right-hand side of the spectrum, you've got the Pharisees, and on the left-hand side, you've got these Sadducees. J.C. Ryle, who had a wonderful beard and some good theology, he said, formalism... Formalism, which is the Pharisees, on one side. And infidelity, which is the progressives and the Sadducees, on the other side. They're the two enemies for whose attacks we must always be prepared. How many of you understand that even now we've got Pharisees and Sadducees? We've got the fundies. And we've got the liberals, okay? And J.C. Ryle saying, listen, these things are going to come at you from every angle. We've got to be prepared for that. So that's why I'm saying, listen, theological triage is an important thing for you to know about, right? All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is important. All revelation that God gives is absolutely worth your time. You should love it. You should study it. But we shouldn't be falling out with each other over things like fourth-tier doctrines, right? But the top-tier doctrines, we've really got to be careful. We can't have unity with people that don't believe the Trinity, okay? And this is the great battle of the day, isn't it? It's the great battle of the day because we've got this movement that's very popular these days called, have you heard of it, the ecumenical movement? The ecumenical movement, most people know of that through Father Ted, that's an ecumenical matter. (laughs) But the ecumenical movement is all about unity. How many of you know that unity matters? How many of you know that unity is something that matters to our Lord and Savior Jesus? And so it is to be taken very seriously. Unity is something we want. Unity is something we must pray for, isn't it? In the body of Christ. And I certainly have such a heart to be united with as many churches as we possibly can be. But the ecumenical movement says, listen, the most important thing bar none is unity. And if we have to stamp and tread all over truth in order to get unity, then that's a price worth paying. J.C. Ryle also said that that kind of unity is the unity of the demonic where we will literally just crush truth in order to have unity. We'll say that things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't really matter if it means we can have fellowship with the Sadducee, with the progressive. That's not a godly unity. Can you see what I'm saying? So we have to be careful. Just because somebody says they're a Christian, just because a, a church professes that they are a Christian church does not mean that they necessarily are a Christian church that will be judged by the truth of the preaching in that church amen amen Sometimes it helps me if people respond just because it, it means I'm making sense and sometimes I doubt whether I am making sense all the time. Uh, I have two young children. I don't sleep very often um, at night and that's not their fault. That's more my fault. But anyway, besides the point, sometimes it helps if you respond so I know that I'm actually saying things that make sense and are logical. So yeah, we, we basically we can't trust that just because somebody says they're a Christian that they are. And So we've got to weigh that claim by what is actually preached from their ministry okay so we can't just have unity with everybody there has to be some form of judging who's a christian and who's not but we also don't want to make that decision based on tier four issues things that maybe we have a strong conviction about like the end times but you know what it's, it's not always necessarily clear throughout church history that everyone's agreed on that thing. And so we don't want to fall out or say somebody's not saved because they have a different view of the end times. Anyway, so the Sadducees, they bear more than a passing resemblance to modern progressive Christianity. Now maybe not all of you know what progressive Christianity is. It's the kind of new badge for liberal Christianity as it was called. Earlier in the last century. So we're talking really about theologians, um, not to bash on them, uh, not to attack them, but just to say that what they are preaching is is what would be called progressive Christianity. Uh, Would be people like Rob Bell. Uh, Anybody heard of Rob Bell? Now I say, listen, some of Rob Bell's earlier stuff is fantastic. Uh, He did a lecture years ago called Everything Is Spiritual, and it's phenomenal. And he did a few videos, the NUMA videos. How many remember the NUMA videos? Which were actually pretty good. And so for a while, we're like, this guy's great. Is he a Christian? And then he starts to write more and more. And we're like, is he a Christian? (laughs) He seems to be denying every major Christian doctrine. And then he released his third book, I think it was, Love Wins. And then we're like, this is sounding more and more like something that is not necessarily a Christian doctrine. And so we're talking about theologians like Rob Bell. Um, Another one, Brian Zand, Um, so Brian Zand would be another um, progressive theologian, or Rachel Held Evans, um, another progressive theologian. So we're talking about that kind of uh, theology, would generally be universalist, would believe that God is going to save everyone, nobody goes to hell, um, as as Lovewind says, um, that God is not going to judge particular sins, that God has not sent Jesus to die on behalf of You and your sins. He hasn't been punished for your sins, but rather Jesus died as an expression of God's love. Or it was just an accident. I've heard that as well. So we're talking about progressive Christianity. That's who the Sadducees were. And so when we talk about progressive Christianity, I like to put the Christianity in inverted commas. Because it's a type of Christianity that's not really Christianity. It's a type of Christianity that denies most of what it means to be Christian in the first place. We're not just talking about a denial of some small doctrines. We're talking about often a denial of the big things, uh, like how we're saved um, and things like that. So these aren't just little things. And often there is a denial of these truths. Um, and just as the Pharisees, sorry, the Sadducees believe, there's a denial of God's sovereignty, um, of his governing of all things. There's a more deistic view of God. So, yeah, he, he created things or he, he was the first mover You know, he set things in motion, but then he kind of disappeared off the scene, and now it's just all up to us. That's the Sadducees' view, and that would be progressive Christianity's view. And so, just like the Sadducees postured like they were Jews, so the progressives posture like they're Christians. The Sadducees claimed to be well-educated,
1: erudite.
0: Intelligent. They were the Judaism for the intelligent, educated classes. This is the same, really, as progressive Christianity. I remember my very first lecture at university in religious studies. And I walked into the class, and I remember maybe within the first half an hour, the professor had up an image of one of Paul's books. Uh, one of the letters, the epistles on the screen, we were all to look at, and he began pulling it apart sentence by sentence and saying, Look, it's clear. This verse was written by one man, but the next verse, the syntax is very different. The vocabulary that's being used is very different. We know, therefore, that this part of the letter was written by someone else who was not Paul. Okay? So immediately we're having scripture dissected and it claims to be done on the basis of better education brighter and that's often how it postures itself and often progressive christianity just as the sadducees did they'll use scripture to argue with scripture have you ever encountered this before i've had debates with friends of mine who are on the progressive end of the spectrum and they will actually take verses to argue with other verses. So there's a denial of what is known as the consistency of Scripture. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is, Derek said this this week, what's the Greek word, Derek? Theon-noustos. Yes, theonoustos, which means God breathed, exactly. So all Scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it has an internal consistency within it because God is unchangeable. God is perfectly logical, perfectly reasonable. He doesn't say one thing over here and contradict it entirely over here. But the progressive Christian theologians and the Sadducees would have an issue with that consistency of Scripture. That doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties, brothers and sisters, in Scripture. There are many difficulties and challenges with trying to interpret how one verse may fit with another, but at the base level, we have to believe what the Apostle Paul said, that all Scripture is ultimately breathed out by God and is therefore consistent with all the rest of Scripture, right through it. And so these Pharisees, they ask, sorry, the Sadducees, rather, they ask a question of Jesus. And really, it's a riddle. It's not necessarily a fair question, but it's a bit of a riddle. They they ask this very hypothetical, almost ridiculous question involving seven brothers. Now, the question that they ask concerns something called leverite marriage, or leverate marriage, rather. And it is in the Bible. It is in the Bible. In Genesis 38, there is this story of, of what the Bible says must happen if there's a couple of brothers, and one of their brothers marries a wife, but he, the, the man dies without having children. Well, in Scripture, what was prescribed was that the brother must take the wife of his other brother And so that this woman would bear a child to keep the inheritance that the family had been given in the promised land. And so there's a very practical reason for it. But the Sadducees invent this kind of wild story, uh, really this kind of riddle. And they've done it in order to ridicule the doctrine of the resurrection. They wanted to present Jesus with this problem that's supposed to just shatter uh, the doctrine of resurrection and show it to be Really, really silly. And so why would it appear silly? I've always read this passage and kind of been like a bit confused by it, if I'm being honest. You know, what, what were they trying to get at? What was their aim here? Why is this such a problem for the resurrection? Now, how many of you know in the Bible that it's not a great idea for a woman to have seven husbands at once? It's not not really something that God says is good. You know, Jesus and the woman at the well in John 4, he says, you've had five husbands. He's not congratulating her. I don't know if you know that. So so basically, what they're getting at is they're saying, listen, if she's had seven husbands in this life, then that means that in the afterlife, in the resurrection, that God's going to have to tolerate polyandry, which is multiple husbands. He's going to have to tolerate that because surely the afterlife is going to be a replication of the former life, right? And she was married to seven brothers in this life, so in the afterlife, God's going to have to tolerate her being married to seven brothers. And so you can see they're using this truth from Genesis about marriage, leverate marriage, they're trying to use that to disprove the truth about the resurrection. And that is exactly what modern progressives do with the Bible. They'll jump to 1 John 4 and they'll say, listen, doesn't it say 1 John 4 16, God is love? God is love, right? Is God love? Amen. You confused about this? Is God love? Yeah, he's love. God is love. Is God a Father? Amen. Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Father. In heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, if God is both love and God is both a father, how's he going to send somebody to hell to fry for eternity? Is that what a loving father does? You can see how they work that argument. They take one verse and they use it to try to disprove another doctrine in Scripture, setting one off against the other. Now, these questions are challenging and do deserve our proper thought and do deserve a, pro- a proper response. But difficult questions don't invalidate biblical truth. Just because there may be an issue in understanding the Word of God does not mean the Word of God is vain or untrue. You know, I can open up a theology book and I can read things that go over my head. Because I don't understand that sentence, does it mean that the sentence is untrue? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that, does it? What else might be happening? I may be struggling to comprehend it. There may be some issues in my reasoning, things I don't understand. And the same is true of the Word of God. Sometimes there are things you will read that will make your head spin. You'll go, how is that true? How can it be true that God is both sovereign and man is responsible? And it'll kind of go like this. Does it mean it's not true? Not necessarily. So difficult questions don't invalidate biblical truth. And Jesus comes back and he says to them, you're wrong. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. How do we stay free from error? How do we stay free From getting into theological error, Jesus says two things. Know your Bible and know the power of God. If you want to stay free from error in your faith of believing false doctrines or of not believing true doctrines, you must know your Bible and know The power of God. J.C. Ryle again said, We learn from this passage how much of religious error may be traced from ignorance of the Bible. You know, one of my friends is a minister in the Church of England, and he said to me he was surprised when training in vicar school how some of the ordinance did not know certain books of the Bible even existed. I'm not saying that's true of all who train for ministry, but that should encourage you to read your Bibles because those who preach the Bible to you do not in this day and age necessarily know their Bible. I don't think that theological expertise should be the only criteria that we use to choose Christian ministers. How many of you understand? You can be theologically astute, but pastorally an idiot, and ruin a good church. Amen? But unfortunately, in this day and age, that's not necessarily the problem. We don't choose people for their biblical acumen. We choose them if they're a good leader. Can they build something? Are they good financially? Are they a good leader? Are they a good orator? Are they good with families? Can they cast a vision? Right? We're not so much interested in whether they know their Bible, whether they are going to defend true doctrine or not, And so that means as Christians today, more than ever, we need to know our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles. But more than this, brothers and sisters, we must know the power of God. We must know the power of God. If you know your Bible, you'll know that your Bible says certain things that are way beyond the capability of mankind to achieve. Your Bible is packed full from cover to cover with miracles, signs and wonders, The splitting of the Red Sea, the holding up of the Jordan River, the sun staying still in the sky. Your Bible's packed full of things that are implausible to the natural mind. Therefore, if you're going to know your Bible and believe your Bible, you must believe in the power of God to accomplish His Word. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, if you knew your Bible, you'd know the God of the Bible. And if you know your Bibles truly, you'll know the God of the Bible. And you'll know that that God is not impotent. He is not distant, but he is present. He is governing and powerful and able to accomplish all that his word promises. How many of you needed to hear that word today? You worship a God who split the Red Sea. And let me tell you today, some theologians believe that the Red Sea in the Bible was just a puddle. No, he split the sea. The Gulf of Aqaba split in two and the Judeans walked through it. He split the sea. Now, is he able to fix your problems? Is he able to sort out your job situation? Is he able to deal with anything that you're facing? The answer is yes. If he split the Red Sea, if he held up the River Jordan, if he held the sun in the sky for his covenant people, can he not do all that you need in your situation in life right now? The answer is yes. So we must believe the power of God. Knowledge of scripture on one hand, the power of God on the other. And in this day and age, there are people who say it's got to be one or the other. You know, there's people that say, all we need to do is get a few people healed. We just need to show the power of God. And then you've got the other people that say, we don't need the miracles and signs and wonders. We just need the word. Jesus says, you need both. You need both together. The spirit and the word. And he says, listen, in heaven, it's not going to be like this life. It's not going to be the same. That's where you're in error. You're expecting the resurrection to be like now. You're thinking of worldly things. You're thinking of Giving a marriage and taking in marriage. But Jesus says, listen, in that life, it isn't going to be like that. We'll be like angels in heaven. He doesn't say we will be angels in heaven. Catch that. You're not going to be an angel, but you'll be like an angel in some sense. Things will be different. James Edwards said, we can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto. Or imagine the Grand Canyon at sunset. Think of that when you think of the resurrection. There are things the Bible tells us about it, but on a level, it's like us still being in in the womb. You know, there are things that are just going to blow your mind, and you wouldn't be able to even imagine if God were to drop that wisdom in you now. If He were to try and reveal something to you about what life will be like in the resurrection, it would blow your mind. It would blow your tiny mind because we can't fully understand it. And Jesus says, doesn't he, he responds to them, he says, listen, you're wrong, we'll be like angels in heaven. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. I always struggled with that. I was like, Jesus, wasn't there a better passage? You could have chosen to prove the resurrection to them than that one. Why go, to, why go there? You know, go to them from, from another book. Talk to them about the issue of Lazarus. or Well, that's actually in the New Testament. But talk to them about something else that seems kind of obscure to me. Why you would do that? <coughs> why does he do that? Well, he does that because the Sadducees only believed in the first five books. They were sad, you see. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus quotes from one of the first five books of the Bible. Now there's a tip for your outreach. There's a tip for your witnessing. If you're speaking to a Muslim, isn't it good to know the Quran on some level? Isn't it good to know which parts of the Bible a Muslim actually believes and then use those parts to reason with them? John 16, for example. John 14. So Jesus uses one of the scriptures that they believe. And of course, that scripture says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God, but I am. The implication being they're alive. They're alive. But more than that, how many of you understand that if Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob were dead, then so was their covenant with God. A covenant only stays valid as long as both parties are living. And so therefore, if the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, they undercut their own covenant with God. They must be alive in order for there to be a covenant with them. And finally... To finish with, Jesus proves the resurrection to the Sadducees and to the world, not just by the Word of God, but by his own bodily resurrection from the dead, which took place less than a week after this conversation with the Sadducees. Now, I know of a friend who's in a church, and her minister told her recently she doesn't believe in the resurrection. Friends, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no hope in this life. Tim Keller. How many of you know of Tim Keller? Went to glory uh, last week. and A fantastic minister and theologian. I would recommend you read The Prodigal God. Start there. It's a great book. But Tim Keller said, if the resurrection is true, if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, then all of your earthly problems, all of your trials, all of your sufferings have a purpose. And everything is going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. If Jesus rose from the dead, for you and I, for those who are in the household of God, everything is going to be all right. Let's stand. Lord God, we pray that we would realize the full glory of your resurrection. That in you rising from the dead, there is a promise of life eternal for us. And so often we give so much time and thought and effort to worrying about this life, this side of eternity. But it's just a drop in the ocean, Lord God. It's just a tiny speck of dust on the seashore of eternity. And Lord, we know that because you were raised in glory, that we too, if we're in you, will be raised in glory to an unperishable life, to be spent eternally in your glory, worshipping you. And Lord, we can't even imagine on a level how amazing that's going to be. But we pray today, Lord, that you would give us just a glimpse of the glory and wonder of life eternal. You in this place today will be reminded that, you know what? There's going to be a time when your knees aren't going to hurt anymore. There's going to be a time when your heart won't ache. There's going to be a time when you won't look back and feel remorse and grief. But there'll be a time of rejoicing yet to come for eternity. There'll be a time of feasting and happiness and rejoicing and praising. And no more sickness. No more death. No more despair. No more disappointment. And Jesus, we thank you that you've opened this up to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in you, yourself alone. We pray today, Lord God, your blessing upon your people, your power upon your people to both know your word and to believe it, to both know the historic power of God and also to experience it today in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.